What can music journalism learn from tech reporting? Might not be the most obvious of questions to ask, but as someone who has devoured Wired Magazine, Fast Company, a whole low ton of different tech press online, like I love The Verge, I listen to all the Kara Swisher podcasts. I am a bit of a nerd or a bit of a geek, and I'm so much so that I don't even know which is the correct term to use. And my interest in the media has been with me from a very young age. Like I started reading Melody Maker when I was about 12, but before that I'd been reading 442. I'd been reading um, some of early Charlie Brooker, um, the man behind Black Mirror, some of his writing in computer games magazines. I also read The Beano and I won a competition with them, which is probably how I became radicalized to be someone who adores the media from a very young age by getting some school shoes and a weird waterproof jacket. But enough about all of these sidebar things that have nothing really to do with this episode. A lot of what this episode is about is the way in which tech is one of the most intersectional beats in journalism. And as we discussed in the previous episode with Emma Garland, that ability to meet a cross-section of topics through the prism of music and culture is something that Kat does brilliantly. She has reported on Megan The Stallion, she's reported on Marilyn Manson, but she's also been very much at the forefront on Me Too reporting around influencers and YouTubers, which I guess are the same thing. And I have loved following her online for a few years. It was really great to get to chat to her and not just have a strange parasocial reply guy kind of friendship on the internet. Um, so yeah, this is my chat with Kat Tenbarge from NBC. So I'm really thinking about where journalism's headed, obviously the economics of it, the platforms that it exists on, and so many of the things that you've said over the last, at least over the last year, have really resonated with me. So I'm really glad you're available to do this chat. And um, I will begin with the question I'm beginning asking everyone is, how would you just explain or define journalism? That is an amazing question. <laughs> it's one that really, I feel like I my head goes right back to journalism school. Um, I went to uh, Scripps Journalism School, which is at Ohio University, and I'm from Ohio uh, in the Midwest. So, you know, in those classes, this is kind of the whole thing that they talk about is like, what is journalism and what are the principles mm. of journalism? Um, and you read books that are like, these are the essentials of journalism. And these books are, you know, hundreds of pages long, and they never really quite boil it down to anything meaningful uh, because the closest thing you can get to like a one sentence definition of journalism is like uh, journalism is the act of performing journalism <laughs> in a newsroom. <laughs> and so one thing that I like about that definition that I think is not universal but I think it's an important distinction a lot of the time is the idea that journalism is something that happens among groups of people. Um, and so, of course, you have people who do solo journalism. Um, but one thing that I think is kind of an interesting thing to consider is a lot of the time journalism requires uh, more than one person. And part of the reason why it could is because of the role of editors and the role of editing and this is something that is invisible to a lot mm. of people who consume journalism. 
um, because they just see the the byline. They don't see the process of editing a story or putting together a package or having a team of people working on uh, a broadcast or a magazine or radio or whatever it is. They don't see how there are lots of interlocking parts. And I think one thing that strikes me as very crucial to journalism, and again, this can be performed solo, this could be performed by one person, but it's usually helpful to have more than one person because you have this sort of system of checks Mm -hmm. and balances where when you're creating a piece of journalism, whether it's an article, uh, a radio segment, a podcast, whatever it may be, um, if if it is involving storytelling then it's useful to have people who can provide their differing perspectives so that the end product you're getting is ideally uh, independent. It's ideally independent of whoever created its like entire perspective and worldview. Um, because I think something that is really hotly debated and people within you know legacy media really hotly debate this idea of neutrality mm-hmm. and objectivity And in the end, like when you go back to those journalism books, they really stress on the fact that objectivity (laughs) uh, and independence is not really about neutrality, which is something that gets Mm -hmm. lost in a lot of like modern and also just throughout history. It's something that gets lost in a lot of the end product of journalism is this idea of like, what should we really be striving for? And in the end, what independence looks like is it looks like having an open mind and I think a lot of times in newsrooms, it's the ability to say like, uh, you know, you've written the story from your worldview, from your perspective. And as I'm editing it, I'm like stripping back maybe some of what is unique to you so that this story can universally resonate and inform more people. And so that's a very, very long-winded answer. It's one of the best answers <laughs> so far on this of the, the interviews I've done. It's, there's so much that you've said in there that's really different to what everyone else has said and considered and um i really love the idea of it being like a beehive that like creates the story because obviously like you've done some quite high profile reporting on me too stories Mm -hmm. and knowing the ins and outs of the libel laws and defamation laws i I think they're the same in the u.s aren't they it's like what you can and can't say it's like for all the conversations about free speech there's an awful lot that you can only say if you know it to be true and that you can yes. find the facts that back it up and the underli- underline and underscore that what you're telling is the true story and not just a string of opinions, <laughs> which yes. I think is one of the reasons why I thought it would be interesting to talk to you especially is because music journalism is so much about opinions. It's about people championing the things they love and celebrating mm-hmm. and recommending things. In fact, I um, was doing a bit of research um, before this and I noticed you own the um, t-shirt made famous by Charlie XCX of they don't build sta- <laughs> they don't build statues of critics which I thought was quite funny um, but before we go too far into the myriad of things to discuss today um, it'd be good if you could introduce yourself to the audience you have a quite an amazing meteoric rise of a CV that I've just been through and um, so yeah could you let everyone know who you are and a bit about you oh definitely well thank you for that introduction <laughs> Uh, so my name is Kat Tembarge, and I work at NBC News currently. Uh, NBC News is one of the major three-letter news media conglomerates in the U.S., so it's the NBC News channel, but I specifically work for NBC News Digital, which is a New York-based office where we write for NBCNews.com. So my work is mostly in the form of written articles. 
Um, and currently, I'm a tech and culture reporter. Previously, I worked at Business Insider or more commonly known as Insider.com. Um, and there I reported on specifically influencer culture. Mm-hmm. So that was my first job out of college. And through these two staff positions, uh, I've been able to cover a lot of elements of sort of the Me Too movement and allegations against powerful people in influencer culture. But also more recently, I've been able to cover more broader, more broadly what we think of as quote unquote mainstream entertainment as well. Because I think that's one of the big things about technology now is everything intersects with it. And I think... There's a few reporters yeah. that have got a similar beat, and I quite like the fact the Americans use that term quite a lot. So your <laughs> your space that you cover, like anything that touches social channels, so court cases, big breaking news stories, like the recent yep. Russell Brand story is also a story of how he's monetized and funded and who he's on the side of and telling the truth for and all those things. So it's the yes. story is... It's about the audience and the platform and the person. And I think it's really interesting that you've got this role where pretty much anything from the Ukraine war and how it's being covered on TikTok through to Mm -hmm. the latest device that the company's bringing out all sits within the same intersection. And I find it quite funny because I remember when I first started, the term new media was used a lot. Um, and you would have mm-hmm. been like the new media correspondent, like even probably 10 years ago and how, how much yep. that's changed. So would you want to talk through a little bit about where does your role even have a, a beginning and an end of what you can and can't cover? Right. That's sort of kind of the complexity of the role. And I consider myself tremendously lucky to have this kind of a position because there's so much freedom to it. Um, and traditionally, what beat reporting looks like Uh, And what I initially actually thought that I was going to be doing when I was in journalism school, um, I was looking at political reporting Mm -hmm. and a lot of politics reporting is really beat defined. So, for example, um, if your beat was uh, even if you were based in Ohio, for example, I did an internship where my beat was like the state capital of Ohio. And even within that, there are more niche Mm -hmm. things like some people would cover a state senate or they would cover um, a certain region and specifically what the representatives of that region are doing. Um, And so what it looks like is you're going into the Capitol building every single day. You're building a source list of the same types of people, insiders within the government, like lobbyists, uh, staffers, people like that. And then you rely over time on this like wealth of sourcing that you've built up to get scoops and information. And at the same time, you're covering what's going down every day and what people need to know. And so that's what B reporting looks like uh, within the context of something very well-defined and rigid, which is our government structure. But what my position entails is drastically different to that because when you talk about tech and culture, that's like the whole world. (laughs) (laughs) And it can mean so many different things. So, you know, sometimes what I'm looking at with a tech story Uh, that I would consider more tech-focused is how a platform like TikTok actually functions. So sometimes I'll do stories about uh, the actual design and features of web platforms and websites and how they work and what sort of cultural and social impact they have. And so that's really kind of like based on actual technology. And then other stories I have, you know, they can range from 
totally cultural, like looking at how the internet uh, is viewing a certain celebrity or politician or influencer. Um, or a lot of times, I think my favorite reporting and something that really intersects with music reporting as well is actually reporting on sort of the lives um, on an interpersonal level of like what celebrities and influencers are doing. And so what that looks like is, you know, these individuals have enormous power in the same way that we view politicians and business leaders as having tangible power and influence, you know, influencers and celebrities, especially in our current moment because of our technology, they have the same kind of power. And that, that power and so goes the way so directly to people as well that there, there's no exactly. filter and buffer. And like, so journalism almost becomes a dissonance for some of those people, like in that direct communication. Yes, exactly. And so that's why, that's a huge reason why that kind of reporting matters because I think there's a, a real tendency for people to look at this whole field as like gossip. And it is actually examining these powerful people, how they have the tangible effects on other people's lives. So that can be the celebrity's relationship with their fans. It can be how a celebrity is abusing relationships with their fans. It can be how celebrities are abusive within their own relationships. And part of why that is important as well is, you know, there's cultural obsession with this stuff that goes beyond the conversation of like, newsworthiness like the interest mm -hmm. and the attention is already there so it's not even worth really having that debate of like oh should we be in johnny depp and amber heard's relationship is that any of our business it's like well the whole world is already deeply invested yeah. in this and the way that they are viewing uh these two people's lives is having a really huge influential impact on how our cultural discourse around all issues of violence Which, are shaped. like i remember that that time the recurring theme from most people i follow and trust was very much johnny depp points to your tweet supporting him but your friend that's been sexually assaulted and wasn't believed will and yeah. i think you could you did some great coverage on how people were monetizing like siding picking a side and most people picked johnny depp's side because it was the much more kind of I don't know, it felt like the side where there was a lot more energy behind it because obviously he's got several more decades of a fan base um, and people yep. that will care about him and believe him, whatever he says and does. Um, and I think it's it's it was really interesting, especially following like, a lot of your coverage. And I one of the things I dug out today actually was um, you shared some threads on Twitter and talked about how great they were as explainers for people that weren't going to mm. go watch a long video and they weren't going to... Um, go on a website and read an article, but a quick Twitter thread that you could jump through, but actually how that had been quite weaponized by people that wanted to tell one side of a story, because obviously you can choose what context you want and you can put whatever quotes you want in a certain order and tell a story, um, which, which at the yeah. end of the day, storytelling is a huge part of journalism, whether that's being done by an individual on Twitter or being done by someone, like you said, with an entire infrastructure around you to ch with the checks and balances. Exactly. Yes. I think that that is a perfect distillation of really what I think my beat is trying to explore is our relationship with information itself, because technology has created an information ecosystem where everyone has power and anyone can control not only their own 
information, but they can also control the information that's being given to others. Um, And so there's a lot of power plays happening right now. And I would say in a lot of arenas, um, mainstream and legacy media institutions are losing. So a lot of my job feels very meta (laughs) because it's like I'm telling the story of our downfall as it's happening. Just watching all of the effects spiraling out of that is fascinating and it's also kind of terrifying because I, I, I think like there's there's loads of different things that i could touch on here but i think the um the idea that someone's misogynistic in their content and then you discover they're actually far far worse in in what they actually do in their real life is important and i think the idea that people feel one way about something and they they judge for instance one of the recurring things is well they've not been charged for it and then you're like but 1.2 percent of rape cases are charged um and it's rare that sexual assault gets more than like five to ten percent of cases convicted um so you start to look at those stats you're like well you're asking for facts and truth it's not like 90 percent of cases are false allegations and people go to prison for making cases unfair untrue cases against people it's like such a tiny percentage of false allegations are made um and i just wonder whereabouts in that information war you see journalism's role to turn that those feelings into facts and mm-hmm. those facts into knowledge because i think that's the the dream of the internet was that it would connect us all and it would put information together which would become knowledge and we're seeing artificial intelligence as a way of like connecting the dots so that information becomes knowledge but that that feels like that feels like the battle you might be fighting most days. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think one thing you really learn when you report on issues like sexual assault is that to the vast majority of people, their decisions around these issues, the things that they say and the things that they believe and the information that they choose to trust, it's really um, almost entirely driven by the emotions over facts and logic. And it's almost entirely driven by loyalties. And a lot of times it's a desire to maintain the status quo. And so as a journalist, when you're trying to present information that disrupts the status Mm. quo, um, you have to do that in a way that you know is going to disrupt people. And so then the question becomes, how can you get them to trust you even if the information that you're sharing is upsetting and it actually goes against whatever their preconceived biases and worldview says? And this is something that we have not, as an industry, been able to do whatsoever. And so what we've seen happen is people are turning away from traditional sources of journalism and credentialed sources of journalism. And instead, they're turning to a sort of aggregator class. And I I do refer mm-hmm. to it as new media a lot of the time um, because it's sort of an influencer punditry class, punditry yeah. class uh, that has emerged and anyone can join it. And lots of people are in it and they don't even really understand that they are this sort of new, mo- new media mm-hmm. um, that a lot of people don't even really understand the power that they now have. And it's the intimacy that they have as well. Like a podcaster is right in someone's ears. A YouTube video is on your phone, which is where your friends and family are. There's a difference to that connection. And if you're spending 
eight hours watching a Twitch or a Rumble stream, or if you're spending every spare hour you have at a weekend watching the same influencer or watching a t- kind of Tucker Carlson or Ben Shapiro type character, then they've got a regular connection with you. I wanted to talk about music a little bit because some of the stories you've covered mm-hmm. have been in those cultures. And I know in the early days of Drowning Sound, we we, we met our first kind of interaction, so we put it lightly, with um, standums of, of bands like Korn. And like, it was often the like really big metal bands where if we did a like a <laughs> six out of 10 or less review of an album, we definitely noticed. Um, and I was just curious how it's been reporting on things like Kanye or Britney mm-hmm. and how because of that emotional connection they have to people, how different or similar it is to the kind of influences and superstars that you've covered. Definitely. The first thing I have to say <laughs> is that because you mentioned mm. corn. Um, so I am not a, a heavy metal listener. I don't hate it, but it's just yeah. not part of my usual repertoire. However, when I was in high school, I went to a Slipknot concert that corn opened mm. for, and it was one of the most fun mm. nights of my life. Like the and I think that that kind of contributes to part of why you get that energy from the Definitely. fandom is like it was one of those concert experiences where I was just like, I have I've never heard a single one of these songs before. I have no idea what they're saying. It's so yeah. loud that I like, think I'm going <laughs> deaf. <laughs> and it was just pure exhilaration. And so it just reminds me, it just seeps kind of into this whole conversation because it's like one thing that music does for people beyond what influencers on YouTube, beyond what actors and actresses do, is there's this deep-rooted emotional intimacy and connection that outweighs words and logic Mm. and just pervades the entire industry. And there's like, there's a lot of beauty to that. It's what music is, but it also creates really difficult situations for journalists who, when you're put in the position of having to either crack that facade um, or go against whatever the prevailing opinion of the fandom is, then it really almost, it, well, not almost, in a lot of ways, it puts you in danger, um, especially in this moment, mm. because the technological ability that fandoms have to harass people, to hurt people's reputations, and to intimidate people into silence is really unprecedented because i think like the marilyn Um, manson case is kind of interesting for that because he's obviously got he's soundtrack moments people's lives like moments that people are sacred in their personal histories and i think the attacks like whenever i've shared any stories around that case and there's been a lot of reporting and with a lot of detail and a lot of facts and a lot of him telling on Mm -hmm. himself as well like literally admitting to things he's done in interviews and um his book and all sorts of places and you notice the kind of like pushback but like i i saw some of the the discourse around some of the reporting you've done and it's it's unbelievable Mm -hmm. the like levels of vitriol and it feels very much people in their feelings and not there's there there feels like and i don't know how much support for instance you get from um i remember taylor lorenz talking about the lack of support Mm -hmm. she was getting when she was being kind of doxxed in um the, like the levels of abuse that she was getting after i think tucker to carlson or someone went after her like there's a whole yes. like thing that the media's never experienced and i'm just curious what kind of protections you think there could and should be and and also the idea of free speech being curtailed by basically mm-hmm. feeling do i want to put up with three weeks or 
six months of abuse right. just for telling the truth? Yes, exactly. You know, as I was speaking, you know, I was thinking about the Marilyn Manson case because I'm always thinking about mm. the Marilyn Manson case because the whole thing, I I haven't done as much reporting on it as others have, but it just like watching it, it, it's even affected me because his defenders are so passionate that they latch on to things like the yeah. Deb Heard well, case he's good because Deb Johnny, and Manson are such good friends. Mm. Exactly. And so you see it like the tendrils of the Marilyn Manson. I, I guess I would just refer to it as a targeted harassment campaign because they have very clear targets. The tendrils of it reach out so far. And what you said about how he gives it, gives it away, it's just honestly one of the most like mind bending things to watch someone like say to the public what they do and then have those people turn around and be like, he could never yeah. <laughs> do this. It's, it's, it's surreal. Um, but, you know, kind of going back towards what you were asking me about, and I think that this is something that Taylor has also explained really well, is when it comes to mainstream media institutions, it's the same underlying biases that we encounter in the public. So, you know, mainstream media, the way that people talk about celebrities and the way that people defend them, it's a product of mainstream media as much as it is something that mainstream media tries to cover. Mm -hmm. And so you see this a lot. Um, like, for example, I think just like a very, very different type of example, but just another example of how media does this. I think the New York Times, after they put out several different headlines yeah. <laughs> about, you know, what has happened in Gaza, they put out an article that was like, media is confused about Gaza. And it's like, you're just reporting on what you yeah. yourself are perpetuating and doing. And so this carries over to all different types of journalism where you see problems that exist within mainstream media also existing outside of it. And so then media tries to report on it, but then you get this sort of um, contradiction of values. And so one area where you see that is when reporters get harassed and targeted for reporting on this type of news and the newsrooms actually don't support mm. them. Um, and so this is something that I definitely have dealt with out throughout my career. I think probably almost every reporter at this point has because it affects almost all beats now. Um, but it makes a huge difference so, that you're a woman reporting and not and yes. not the average white man that's that people are used to dealing with. Exactly. And for reporters of color, particularly female reporters of color, um, it is on a completely other mm. level. Um, I reported on a story about the smear campaign against Megan Lee Stallion and how um, the Tory Lanez trial was covered through misinformation by a lot of really prominent bloggers. And I reported that story with a black female coworker who endured so much more harassment after the story than I did. And we were literally co-byline. So it just goes to show, and, and, and it's just like, even if I'm the one who has like endured a lot of like shit slinging over the past couple of years, but also throughout my whole career, but even then they still go after her more. It's like in some ways I would be a bigger target, but they still go after mm. her more. So it just shows me that regardless of how big their platform is and regardless of how much they're putting themselves out there, people target 
female journalists of color. They go out of their way to target them. Um, And I think a lot of times, whether they have good intentions or not, newsrooms are incapable of addressing this issue in the ways that they perpetuate it and in the ways that they just don't at a systemic level really understand or know how to combat this issue. That's a lot. I'm fine. I'm just processing what you're saying for a moment because the the idea that you do your job and that part of your like it must make you question occasionally whether whether you would much rather just be like covering some fairs and fakes <laughs> and but I, I but I think it's such an important time and I think one of the things um I was curious to ask you about is obviously the culture war so much of it's entwined with music um and obviously gender identity which is something which the music scene and industry is much more inclusive of and um like so many of the topics that come up are things where the music industry is reasonably um i think progressives maybe not the right word obviously not everyone and everything in the industry is um as far along the track as you'd hope it would be but it feels like there's Mm -hmm. never any response from the industry because it's almost like these people are having a conversations with themselves like around the time mm-hmm. of the Brit Awards, um, which the UK kind of, it's like equivalent of our Grammys and they changed the kind of international male and international woman and male and male and female solo categories to just being international pop star and international and like international rock star or something. There was like different titles for them. Um, and the discourse around it was, well, to be inclusive of Sam Smith, they've they've like thrown women under the bus. And it's like, well, actually, the mm. year before, the category was four women and one guy. Um, and it's like, so the st- <laughs> even, the, even the facts of the story get lost so often. Um, so I'm just yes. kind of curious whether you have any thoughts on whether some of your job is kind of pushing back against kind of misinformation, disinformation. It absolutely is. And I think... Something that I've also learned over the past few years, and this is not a new idea, like the rhetorical understanding of this tactic dates back to a pre-internet age, but the idea that disinformation is effective because the people who are spreading it don't actually care about the standards of truth. And it's almost like, well, duh, but like, <laughs> but this, this really, you know, peels back kind of why a lot of times I think people are like, why isn't journalism working? And it's like, here's why <laughs> the people who push disinformation, not only do they not under, do they not care about the truth, but they've also cultivated an audience that speaks out one side of their mouths while acting exactly the opposite way. They've cultivated an audience that claims to care about the truth, but they actually seek out information that only caters to their worldview. And so on the media side, we do two things that kind of need improvement or at least need to be um, interrogated. One thing that we do is we believe people when they say that they want Mm -hmm. the truth, even though we can look at their own consumption habits and see what they actually Even they want. literally can't we kind of take it all the time. Yeah. Exactly. Like we, we, you constantly see media executives putting out statements about how people just want the truth and everyone just values the truth. And why can't we just tell the truth? And it's like, well, for years now, we've seen that that's not actually what people want. So when we are failing to understand because we're taking it at face value, 
that really gives away kind of the whole failure. <laughs> it's like as journalists, we actually should be looking beyond what's face value. Like that's actually our job. Um, so, you know, from a very systemic level, we've kind of failed to do that. And then the second part of it is with fact checking. If the if the kind of opposition here doesn't care about what's actually true, then in the process of fact checking, you're losing valuable ground and time by focusing in on things that have already moved past you. And so it's a difficult balance to strike because you don't want to just let disinformation and lies go unchecked. But you also have to be smart about it and strategic about it and recognize that the speed of public discourse is going to exceed uh, the speed at which you can correct the narrative. Um, and I don't know exactly how we can go about balancing these two things. It's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, but I think more people in media, especially at the highest level, need to be thinking about mm. these things because from the way that they make decisions and the way that they speak, you can tell they don't really get it. It's, it's really interesting. I've often thought about how retractions never published in the same place as the original story. And I, and I wonder mm -hmm. if a journalist should have a score next to their name of number of times they've needed to post a retraction <laughs> or number of times they've been fact-checked by an institution that, that fact-checks stories. Like it feels like there's, because I, I often think about this with record reviews, like how does someone know they can mm -hmm. trust my music taste? Well, for 20 years I've recommended music and some of my favorite albums when the, no one had heard of the band are now artists that become huge. Does that mean I'm quite good at spotting things that become big? Then that's, and you, mm -hmm. if you're looking to discover an artist before they get big, then maybe I'm someone to trust. But actually telling that story and not just sounding like an arrogant idiot is quite hard. Um, and, mm -hmm. But for instance, like your bylines under your stories, they don't have like your greatest hits of the things that you've done and achieved in your career and got <laughs> correct. And, um, and I think that, we do a really bad job of tracking the people that are consistently wrong. Um, I often think mm -hmm. about music journalists who almost every band they've recommended has never gone on to do anything. And yet they have, they have jobs <laughs> tipping music. Um, and yes. I think that there's something in amongst all of that where the conversation of what's true and what's not um, I can see exactly what you mean about it's almost like you're sent over. Well, here's all the evidence to go through um, while someone else has moved on to the next story and the moment's passed. I I don't really know how you give people the truth without them going, well, that's not the truth I was looking for, which feels like what Trump did to kind of disrupt any concept yes. of where we are. Um, but I, I wonder if, if in amongst that, the, this this concept of free speech does feel again like one of the things which is quite broken this concept that you can say anything and have an opinion about something and it's got equal weight to something that's actually checked and true yes yes and i think that a big part of this conversation that is obscured and lost on many people until they've personally experienced it or have had someone they know is that there are such mechanisms in place to chill speech that we don't even recognize mm. and have yet to really see are there like we haven't even come close to combating them because we can't even acknowledge the problem exists yeah. and part of that problem is within our online culture um how we see targeted harassment operate and a lot of it a lot of reporters are you know victimized by it and that's also you know, kind of intentional because 
if you're looking at someone who doesn't believe in targeted online harassment and you're trying to convince them that it's real and you're also a victim mm -hmm. of it, to a lot of people, this is not fair, but they're going to discredit you because they're going to think that being a victim of it means you're biased in yeah. some way. And, you know, that logic, it's also, of course, the same thing that gets applied to victims of violence in general, particularly sexual violence and domestic abuse. It's, oh, well, you're a victim, so you're no longer credible because this thing that happened to you has somehow made you yeah. biased. Well, the, this and thing that's really, traumatized really you, standard. that has made you yeah. unable to tell your story in a way where the emotion isn't right to the fore, that you're not comfortable sharing something terrible that's happened to you publicly. Yeah, it's, it's really disconcerting. Sorry, I was agreeing with you whilst being slightly sarcastic. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. It, it, it is. And I, uh, I think that um, there are constant and increasing examples of how uh, online mechanisms are used to chill speech. And what we're also seeing is really broad censorship attempts um, at the national and at the local level, at least in like U.S. politics. Um, we're seeing, you know, escalating book bans. We're seeing motions to take people 18 and under off the Internet entirely. You know, we're seeing things that would really not only chill speech, but also the ability and the freedom to access information. And so there's really kind of a war on information coming from all yeah. fronts. That's that's quite a huge. We could do, probably do a whole series of podcasts on that topic. So I'll, uh, um, yes. but I, I wonder how much, um, like in the UK, people talk a lot about grievance culture and how the things mm -hmm. which impact. And it's always interested me why, for instance, like, stories about R. Kelly didn't seem to cause mm -hmm. the same grievance that a book having a character removed from it because people find it offensive. Like, I, I just wonder where, like, when you're, like, I guess not necessarily in your commissioning, but just in your processing of things, why you think mm -hmm. that... Because to me, the first time I read the reporting on R. Kelly, I was disturbed by it, and I had no reason not yes. to believe it. And then a decade passed... <laughs> I think that, you know, this is something that I first really picked up on when I reported on YouTube culture. I noticed that when looking at the slate of the most popular creators in, for example, the beauty genre, there was constantly drama. There was an entire cottage industry built around uh, the drama of this community. But the types of drama that people cared about the most were the things that were the most inconsequential and comparatively when these beauty YouTubers were accused of really serious acts of uh, sexual violence and predatory behavior, um, people looked away. And I think the reason that people look away is because it is on one hand very emotionally difficult uh, to confront and process and comprehend. But I also think that it's so difficult to imagine trying to fix these sorts of issues that people would rather just disengage entirely than have to confront the idea that they are culpable for this type of culture or the person who they like is culpable of this behavior and these types of allegations. And I think that informs so much 
of the consumption of these issues. I keep thinking a lot about the attention economy and how obviously a lot of what Elon Musk has done is just monetized, essentially turning Twitter into 4chan and kind of putting the worst of the worst content out that doesn't have to be true, but just going to just going to go viral for, for engagement and reach. And I wonder to what extent, like if there's not retractions, and I guess defunding happens eventually with some people, but then they just move to a different platform. And that's why I think the things like the Check My Ads campaign are some of the most mm-hmm. brilliant activism that's out there. And there's a com- campaign in the UK called Stop Funding Hate. Because um, yes. it is important about what's the economics of it. And I just wonder whether when you're com- when you're being commissioned, for instance, um, I'm assuming it's not, well, this is going to, like, there has to be a certain level of traffic it's going to generate for mm-hmm. the time and resource and attention that you put into the work. But I wonder whether there are stories which don't get told because they're not going to reach enough people or not be interesting enough. Like, is is that one of yes. the bigger challenges? Absolutely. That is one of the biggest challenges. And it is such a difficult balance um, of trying to tell important stories and also trying to figure out this metric that is public engagement, which is dominated by things like fear and rage. Um, So for example, on social media, the things that perform the best are things that induce these emotions. And so when you're looking to tell stories, um, even before I could like really verbalize a lot of these dynamics, I knew I picked up very early in my career, um, which was like, I worked at news websites that were dominated by the clicks and the traffic. Mm. And I recognized that in order to get people to click on something, there had to be conflict. Um, And so this is also, you know, this is how all storytelling, whether it's fiction or nonfiction works. You have to have conflict. There has Mm. to be a narrative. Um, If you're telling a story about a new product being launched, no one's going to click on that unless there's some element of, this product launched and it's offensive (laughs) (laughs) or this product launched and people hate it. Um, And so that's why a lot of news is also dominated by negativity. Um, And one sort of insidious factor is that when you're looking to tell stories about um, issues like violence or sexual assault um, or even more broadly issues like disinformation, um, you have to almost pick topics that the public cares about. And so you're going to get a lot of bias toward reporting on traditional celebrities, people who have big mainstream platforms, uh, people who are already in the news a lot. And so a lot of stories get completely passed over because if the audience doesn't already have one foot in this topic, then editors who are, you know, encumbered by these types of pressures are going to pass. They're going to say, no, it's not worth the energy, even if it is a really impactful and important story. There's so much in there to, to, to go through. But I was I was really intrigued by a comment you made this week about reading and how mm-hmm. the push against everything, like the pivot to video that happened, what, about eight years ago to pretty much every publication and then most of them imploded. And now the shift to things like podcasts, which I appreciate how meta it is saying that here. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just thinking like, what do you see as the the hope of what what's going to exist going forwards? Mm. 
I think that, you know, I, a lot of my feelings around this are informed by my own career, which has been dominated by writing. Mm -hmm. And it's also informed by my consumption habits, which are dominated by reading. I've always been more of a reader and more of a writer than a speaker or a listener or a performer, which is what TikTok entails yeah. doing. <laughs> and so when I see platforms like TikTok and it's like, oh, you need to have a presence on here. Um, and that presence involves being on camera and being on and having your appearance and the way that you sound factor into it. It's like those elements are frustrating to me because I don't want to have to deal with them. Mm. <laughs> and at me the same either. time, yes, I'm, at, I'm also at the same time, I'm completely resigned at this stage to knowing that you can't force people to be readers. And our digital culture has accelerated this shift away from having those types of information consumption preferences. People do prefer to have things read to them and they prefer to watch things and they prefer to listen to things. And so, you know, I feel like I'm just being dragged <laughs> into the future. Well, these people watch things, but they still read the subtitles. They might as well, Absolutely. Have, you might as well just present your article as subtitles. Yes. I think like a lot of times when I think about where my own career is headed, I, I definitely think especially as I watch the downfall of platforms like Twitter, mm. um, I think to myself, like, it's coming, it's inevitable, like, you just are going to have to have some sort of video-facing platform. And I do think that the most comfortable <laughs> type of co consuming that sort of information is through the form of podcast. Yeah. Um, if I get on TikTok, I can watch it for, like, seven hours. <laughs> um, but... I never want to do that. Like I, mm. I, most days I do not go on TikTok. I do not want to spend seven hours yeah. of my day on TikTok. Um, so, yes. Yeah, I think there's, it's also like the idea that we're not too far away from being able to have a digital avatar, which basically you could give a script to. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of intrigues me of where we might shift slightly. And um, there's lots of really interesting things with, um sherry hugh from water and music for instance she's got a version of her voice where basically they can put any article in it, it turns it into a podcast mm -hmm. um so it creates an audio essay really quickly and i'm really curious about whether we'll see a rise in audio essays the tortoise media company do some really good ones which they're more like a radio documentary but they're much more like an audio essay yeah um, and i find that idea of obviously audiobooks have become a big thing and wonder i do wonder whether journalism might head into that space a little Yes. Um, but I think it's frustrating that Twitter was quite a good platform for quite a quick hit of journalism. But obviously that's that's shifting and I can't see any of the other text based platforms necessarily re replacing it. Um, right. Exactly. Like, I don't know whether we'll get news in a voice memo. <laughs> <laughs> I I do enjoy voice memos, so I could mm. be open to that. I think for me, I have to have some sort of visual component to the audio most of the time. Yeah. So if I'm listening to just audio, I need to be doing something with my hands uh, mm. to like keep my attention on it. But I really like the format that's become quite popular on YouTube, um, which is just like two people, camera on them, sitting in a room, talking. Yeah. And even if the visual is quite simple, it's still a little bit more engaging than just like 
to me listening with just the headphones in. Yeah, I'm a the one of the big inspirations behind this series with John John Favreau's offline. Um and I they're just really good. He just gets a good guest on each week and mm-hmm. they talk about topics like we just have. Um yep. and the whole crooked media thing is I think they've done a really good job of bringing politics into a space that didn't necessarily have much media coverage. Um, yes. Well, I've got one last question for you. Um, Amazing. Having discussed all these things, whereabouts do you think music journalism's future could be headed? And Ooh. how do we prevent another Britney? <laughs> oh my gosh. I think, you know, I'll tackle the second part first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that, Britney, uh, I'm very passionate about Britney as a performer, as a person. And I think right now, in this very moment, Britney is yet again being maligned in mm. the media and by the public. And so part of preventing another Britney is in treating the current Britney <laughs> with respect. Yeah. And it just it infuriates me to see people stigmatize her and paint this fit, false portrait of her being dangerously unstable or maybe she should go back into the conservatorship or maybe we owe her dad an apology i just oh it makes me want to puke the revisionism and the dismissal of what she endured is just drives me up the wall but it's the real obvious misogyny to it all exactly exactly um and i do think so that kind of can lead me into where i see music journalism going i think that with sort of the democratization of opinion and how anyone can make a TikTok about their opinion on a current event or something in music and go viral and then be viewed as an authority within Mm. minutes. It has really created an environment where I think having strong perspectives uh, and like purposeful storytelling shines through. And so it's actually the opposite of what you see a lot of mainstream outlets doing right now is like there's this misguided attempt to shift to like the ultimate neutrality, like no opinions, just facts. And it's like, Mm. well, actually what people want right now and what's working right now is and I think could seem could be blended with journalism to create a really great end product is having a strong point of view. So like one point of view could be and should be combating the misogyny that underlies everything Mm. and i think that reporting that takes a point of view is actually going to be what is successful whether it's through the mediums that we've just talked about or whether it's through uh you know text-based articles there will be an audience for that because there's always an audience of people like when you have a strong point of view that's actually based by evidence which is of Mm. course what journalism is uh you know it's not just saying like my perspective is that I'm a Taylor Swift stan. It's like my perspective (laughs) is that, you know, women's accomplishments have been, women's lives and narratives have been consistently uh, mischaracterized and demonized and all of this. And so starting from a a fact-based place, starting from a journalistic conclusion, that can then inform reporting. And I think that's what I really crave when I look for new media. And I think that's what a lot of people crave. That's really interesting. I've been thinking a lot about how to cover some quite big topics, which in music journalism just don't really get covered. Or if they do, it's Mm -hmm. like a one-off small piece. For instance, 
vinyl is made from petroleum and we're currently in an age of climate climate disaster Mm -hmm. fossil fuel is funding often some of the worst things in the world and yet the music industry is still allowing taylor swift and adele to like block out pressing plants for months at a time to make their records which most Mm -hmm. people aren't even listening to um and amongst that i think the tangibility and physicality of music but also of, of news and magazines. I noticed um, you were part of launching a magazine a few years ago and I wondered wondered whether your faith in print was, was there or not. Yes, I am so honored <laughs> that you brought that up because I that was something I did in college when I was mm. the editor-in-chief of a student publication. And looking back on it, like my motivations were not necessarily inspired by logic like I don't think I could have put into words why print felt important to me but what I really wanted to do with that product was I wanted to um, not only use it as a vehicle for journalism but my main kind of goal with it was a vehicle of branding because Mm -hmm. I was the editor-in-chief of a small student publication on a campus that had a big journalism school that was dominated by student publications. And we weren't one of the big ones. So Mm. my goal in creating a print product for the first time in the publication's history was I wanted to print a thousand copies. I don't know how many we ended up printing, but we printed however many copies. It was crazy. Like we were knocking on local businesses, like please put an ad in our back cover Mm. so that we can print copies. And I just wanted to put them in every single freshman student's hands for orientation. And so that's what we did. And I think that I just really, really wanted people to be able to physically recognize us um, as an institution. And it didn't increase the readership on our website. Like our numbers remained relatively (laughs) flat. (laughs) But what it did do that I think was ultimately much more impactful than just the website itself was it helped us recruit the biggest ever pool of talent into our newsroom. Mm. And, you know, student newsrooms, they're like, they can produce really impactful and important journalism, but in a lot of ways, they're like playing journalism. Like it's like a playroom so that you can learn the skills and take them into the real world. And I'm like very proud to say that like several of those freshmen that that print magazine recruited have now gone on to have leadership positions in local newsrooms around the country. Mm. So I just I think that there are so many incredible qualities to print. And I think the environmental angle is a hugely important one, especially now. I think that we have to be very strategic and very um What's the word? I just think we have to be very principled in how we are creating print products and why we're doing that. And it can't just be, I want to sell the most records that anyone has ever sold and no one's even going to listen to these things. Mm. It has to be like, there's a reason. Like my voice needs to be heard. I have like a purpose for doing this. Because I think also in all of what we've discussed today, we've talked about all of the perils and problems of, of something we love, which is the internet. Um, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't use the word love about the internet anymore, but, um, but <laughs> I think, hate. I think that idea of is the best answer to a lot of the questions we've asked today, removing yourselves from the algorithms, the platforms, the ad supported. And like, I, I keep coming back to this idea that the, the, the funding model of most media is quite broken and the idea that it's ad supported 
everything. There's not enough ads to go around. Like there's certain companies that are not going to face the same level of criticism because they're funding the bulk of the internet at some points in time. And um, which I don't think necessarily happens, but you can imagine it might do if you were sponsored by someone for a long time. Um, I don't know. I just feel like there's, there needs to be an answer to this chaos and this, like the ability for, for instance, in the UK, we've got loads of really far right politicians and they just say whatever nonsense they want. It gets widely reported, can take over the media for a few days and nothing changes. People move on afterwards, but someone's career might be damaged, reputation might be damaged or just politics as a whole gets damaged because people just think, well, politicians are all as bad as each other and then they don't vote, which works best for the far right parties because those people will vote regardless um anyway i don't really have a point there i'm just rambling (laughs) that's what podcasts are for right (laughs) (laughs) exactly no i think that we're in a very we're in a time of unprecedented shifts like the media landscape is changing so quickly and the world is changing in a really rapidly and scary way and a lot of things like this is a this is a period that's going to, in my opinion, in my prediction, redefine the next few centuries. The way that technology has evolved in the past 15 years is going to change the rest of history. It already has. So I just think that there's optimism and pessimism wrapped up in that. And I think that a lot of what we've talked about today is sort of the conversations that are going to be had with urgency um in the coming years and just like that the deep state shut down one of our internet connections or both our internet connections that was my conversation with kat tenbarge from nbc and i'd recommend going to follow her online she's got some great reporting coming out all the time um that episode was a bit different to all the others so i hope you appreciated why i thought plunging into the world of tech reporting with so many overlaps of music was kind of worth exploring i'm enjoying doing this series so far i hope you're enjoying listening to it drop me a tweet or a thread or an instagram or anything let me know what you think um i'm at sean in sound everywhere and yeah this series is gonna shift gears again it's gonna go a bit more music magazine-y next so uh, thank you for listening. I've been Sean Adams, the host of the Drone and Sound podcast. I also produce this and have been messing around with AI voices at the end of each of these episodes, if you've got to the end of them. Um, but I thought I'd chat to you for a change this time. Thank you for listening. Speak to you soon. <laughs>